Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Live Truth and Movies. In this special live from the London Podcast Festival edition, we bring you Borg versus McEnroe, hardcore sets and courtly bromance in Swedish tennis smash. Also, from smash to mash, as we have the re-release of the original Full Contact Spielberg lens flare sci-fi classic, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 40 years on, is it still out of this world? And we ask, what's your favourite slice of Spielberg in this special live edition of Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast? <laughs> Excellent. Now, uh, as Lacombe says in Close Encounters, we didn't choose this place, we didn't choose these people. <laughs> they were invited. And uh, we have here David Jenkins... Hi there. The man behind Little White Lies and the other man behind Little White Lies, along with a, a broad and diverse team of, of collaborators. Yes. Too numerous to bring to the stage this evening. Yes. We have Adam Woodward. Hello. Uh, and I think the first thing we're going to do is have a quick uh, salute to Harry Dean Stanton, who's so sadly passed away, but we're very grateful for the tremendous life and tremendous work that he did. 91, I think it was Friday, no, that he, he passed away. Yeah, late Friday evening, I believe. Yeah, a bit of a, a legendary actor, obviously, a real veteran. Most recently appeared in Twin Peaks. It was obviously in the original series as well. And Paris, Texas, which is probably my favourite, well, one of my favourite films. Of all time? Of all time, I'd say. And his performance, particularly in that, I think is what, what makes it for me. He's one of those actors who, you know, you can kind of do away with scripts altogether and just leave the camera on his face and he's just got an amazing uh, facial repertoire. And Little White Lies at the moment has a review of a film called Lucky, which uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure who, who wrote it, but they said basically this is Harry Dean Stanton's best work ever. Well, yeah, no, I've not seen Lucky, so I can't comment on that, uh, the veracity of that re review. I'm sure it is 100% correct. But yeah, it's a, a, a late leading role that he's, that he's taken and it's, it, it looks like a kind of a weird, sort of quite down-homey Western kind of movie. And yeah, I do, I do definitely want to see it. I think it might be in the London Film Festival, actually. Yeah, it premiered in, uh, at the South by Southwest Festival. It's in London as well, I think. OK. Um, it sounds mm. like it's a f about a guy, basically, comes to terms with his own mortality, so there's an interesting... Uh, right, yeah. OK. I wonder if that's what did it, then. Uh, anyway, he was 91, which is quite extraordinary. He was still making films at that point. Yeah. I did enjoy this tweet from David Rudnick, who says... R.I.P. Harry Dean Stanton. So far, the Nostromo crew have died in the same order they did in Alien, which means that Sigourney Weaver may never die. Is that right? Yeah, apparently so. I must admit, I didn't go back and check. That's amazing. So let's not forget Repo Man as yeah. well. Yeah, Repo is, Man Repo and Man is, uh, is, is is very very good. Stanton. I think we should do Repo Man as a film club. Okay. Very good. Let's do that. Do you know he was also in it, Cool Hand Luke? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're ahead of me. Yeah. <laughs> ahead of me. Right. Excellent. They, All right. they know. They know. Mm. Let's get on then to our first of uh, next Friday's releases, which is Borg versus McEnroe. It's the perfect rivalry. The baseline player and the net rusher. Borg, how does it feel knowing you could make history if you win your fifth Wimbledon? No special feelings. The only thing standing between Borg and that record is you. You and Borg are as different as two people could possibly be. The ball is on the line! How do you respond to McEnroe's comment from before the tournament that Borg the machine will soon break down? I'm just like uh, anybody else. I'm not a machine. Mm. Well, there you go. This is uh, Borg v. McEnroe, clearly. Uh, the story and also the backstory of two of the greatest tennis players in history, their tremendous rivalry and the epic match which was uh, the climax of said rivalry. Bjorn Bjorg, uh, played by the extraordinarily Borg-esque 
uh, let me get this right, Sverrir Gunnarsson mm-hmm. and John McEnroe by the rather less John McEnroe is Shia LaBeouf. Or is it Shia? Is that right? Shia LaBeouf? Shia, Shia. Shia LaBeouf, right, okay. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård appears as well. Uh, and uh, it's a very Swedish film. It hasn't gone down particularly well. There's been mixed reviews. I saw this isn't a movie, it's a two-hour Wikipedia entry. Uh. And Peter Bradshaw, who's usually quite reliable in The Guardian, saying, this tennis film feels like a two-hour baseline rally, and it's not just the rackets that are made of wood. Ouch. Ouch. Adam. Now... It didn't say this at the start of the film, fortunately, but this is based on actual events, Adam. It is, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's gone, the setting is it's the lead-up to Wimbledon in 1980, which would have been and was Borg's uh, fifth consecutive Wimbledon championship win. Uh, and, you know, you have McEnroe coming on the scene as this young, hot-headed, very talented American. Um, you mentioned the film's very Swedish. It's definitely more interested in Borg than it is McEnroe. In Sweden, the film is called Borg. It's just called Borg, Just yeah. called Borg, yeah. Which is disappointing because although, you know, uh, Sveria Goodnesson looks... He is a dead ringer for Borg. Uh, Borg doesn't have a reputation of being one of the big personalities of tennis. Isn't, whereas, isn't that what's interesting... This film's trying to do... He, Sorry. Well, I was going to say, so it it focuses on him, although you've got, uh, you know, Johnny Mack there, who is, you know, the big, probably the biggest personality ever in tennis. And they kind of sideline him a bit and they're not interested in him. So they they tell Borg's backstory. Uh, You get to learn a lot about, I guess, what he was like off the court. But really, my takeaway from this was that McEnroe was a bit of a dick on the court and Borg was a bit of a dick off it. That's kind of Ah, all that there was. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think the criticism is justified? The criticism of the film being yeah. on Wikipedia? With some people, for example, saying that there wasn't that much excitement in this rivalry, so essentially it's a, a dead film because of that. I mean, if you know anything about their rivalry or about what tennis was at that time and, and that match in particular, which is one of the great Wimbledon finals, you know, the, the, the film reaches this climax... At which point it goes on for this 20, 25-minute scene, which is basically the final being played out, sort of reconstructed. Um, And it's it's weirdly done, I think, because you can see the two actors are not trained tennis players. They're kind of dancing around the court, and there's a CGI tennis ball in post. So um, I went to see this at the Curzon Soho, who were doing a screening early on Friday. And I was talking to one of the, the, the guys there before, and he said, excitingly, when it arrived on this kind of hard drive that films arrive on now, they put it in and they played it. Mm. It wasn't the final run. It didn't have CGI. So essentially, the tennis oh, match really? was, was done without any balls. See, and I he thought like this, seen that. Yeah, yeah he said this was really exciting. It was like a comment on what is tennis. I just was watching it thinking, why am I not at home just watching the final on YouTube? Really? Yeah. OK. David? Same. What? <laughs> except, except I didn't want to watch it on YouTube either. Really? Although I did, I did go home and, 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 and look at uh, McEnroe's rants because I was really surprised to see that he uh, F's and Jeff's on the court. Um, I, d- I didn't think that was... That, I didn't think he went that far, but he did, apparently. Yeah. No, it's really bad. I mean, that, that, the music on the trailer is sort of slathered over this film and, uh, you know, you get the, the sort of final match. It's just like, you know, it's, it's like Michael Bay's Wimbledon. It's like camera all over the place and like this ramped up music and people sweating and it's and and you know it's it's, it's like armageddon or something and, and each shot seems to take an absolute age mm. each like point they really drag out they really try and inject the drama into what's right. already quite a dramatic sporting event okay i think what it is it's one of these biopic films that really tries to kind of retroactively engineer in 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 some relevance into the story so that you have their kind of the things that they do, and you have like, you know, Bjorn Borg, who is a bit like highly strung, no pun intended, and, uh, and, and, and very kind of, uh, he's got all these rules and rituals that he goes by. There is a series of episodes, and then for each one, you kind of flash back to his youth, just at the point where you, you're about to think, oh, he was quite a horrible guy. You flash back and you see this thing that happened in his youth, and you think, oh, that's why. 
He, he, he's actually all right. He's just the sum total of his childhood traumas. Right. I, I, I must admit, I, I, I had a slightly different reaction to this film. And I'm not sure you're being entirely fair to it. I, I, I am a, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I do love a, a true-life sports yeah. flick a la Moneyball. Or I guess the better comparison here would be Rush, the um, mm-hmm. Ron Howard film about... It was Ron Howard, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. So Nicky Lauder and, and James uh, Hunt, from mm-hmm. a similar era, kind of end of the 70s, 80s. And I, I'm kind of old enough to remember that final, the 1985 final, the rivalry that led up to it. And the extraordinary way that which they touch on in this film, the whole thing of Superborg, mm. Iceborg and Superbrat. Yeah. Whereas what this film no big surprise, I guess, is, is saying that they're pretty much the same personality. Only one has had to, for the sake of having any success in tennis, he's had to bury everything so far, so far down, under so much self-control, that he's essentially watching the world from about five miles deep. And there's, a, I thought, a really poignant scene where the first time we see the two of them in the same room, I think, they're in a locker room, and McEnroe comes in effing and jeffing at everybody. And Borg's just sitting there on his own, and, and Borg just looks across, and he, he kind of recognises. It's almost mm. like a, a man in the desert so finally sees like somebody me. else, yeah. and he tries to smile at him, and McEnroe just oblivious. And there is that tremendous loneliness, which they touch on in the trailer, and I think comes through the, the film. Is it Goodnesson who mm. has this extraordinary resemblance to, to Borg? I felt he does a tremendous job with not very much in this film, He's basically fairly impassive all the way, but hints at tremendous, uh, a soulful angst. Yeah, I, I mean, beyond the last 25 minutes of the film, or sorry, before that, I, I quite enjoyed most of it. Okay. I mean, you know, the performances are one-dimensional, I think. You, you see a lot of, like, Borg's backstory via him as a kid, right? So the kid actually does a lot of the, the heavy lifting, the child actor in this. The, um, you, the kid is Borg's son as well. Is he actually? Yeah, yeah, he's actually Borg's son. Oh, OK. Well, there you go. Wow. You know, if he doesn't know how to be Borg... Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, Shia LaBeouf is, is, is really bad, I think. Oh, OK, so Shia yeah, LaBeouf, yeah, yeah. right. I mean, it's, it's kind of lose-lose in that John McEnroe is, like, as you say, one of the most well-known mm. tennis personalities of all time. And then you get Shia LaBeouf basically playing Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> and, uh, and I think there's meant to be some comment on, like, oh, Shia LaBeouf, he's the bad boy of film. Mm. And he's, now he's playing the bad boy of tennis, but as the bad boy of film. Yeah, that was and my it, next point. Oh, actually. right, OK, sorry, I've, I've jumped I'm the gun kidding. there. But um, <laughs> that, that's very, that's, that, that I found very strange. Um, and never once for a second thought I wasn't watching... It should have been called LaBeouf Le, Borg. I mean, it was... <laughs> Um, but yeah, I did, that, I did that, like that. a lot of the earlier stuff with Borg, not as he is as, as, as a kid, but in the present day, where you know you get a sense of what it was like to be him. He's a kind of rock star figure, mm. but doesn't really you know want the attention. And there's a lovely scene where he's in Italy, I think, somewhere, or, or, or is it Monaco, maybe? He loses his keys. Yeah, and he, yeah, and he, he nips in into a cafe. He's basically having to kind of he's locked his car keys somewhere, and he, he has to kind of walk home and dips into this cafe and the, the, the waiter doesn't recognise him. And they have this lovely little moment where he serves some coffee, can't pay for it, and then he helps the waiter out with you know, some pretty menial task. But it's a really nice moment, and I just kind of wish the film had done a bit more of that and not inevitably built to this moment that you, you know how, it's, how it plays out and it does it in a very... It is quite a, it, it inevitable, though. I mean, I think a lot of people yeah. would have felt equally shortchanged had it just been about the cafe days and not the, the oh, actual oh, match what, which defined their rivalry. I think it would have been much bolder not to show the tennis match at all. Right. Uh, there's a bit at the end that irked me as well. I mean, sorry to go on. I, 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 didn't, <laughs> I really didn't like this film. Um, but you're quite a stickler for kind of period detail. Yes. And um, one thing that I found very odd, and maybe you guys can explain this to me if I've, missed, if I've sort of misread it, but there's a sort of scene at the end where they bump into each other at an airport. Oh, yeah. And this would have been, what was this, 1980? 1980, yeah. So a London airport in the 1980s that looks like a Habitat show home. You know, it, it's like the plushest airport I've ever seen. It's like a no, that's fair. To be, they don't actually specify that they're in London. No, I don't. But think... the assumption is that they are there because they're both leaving after Wimbledon. Yeah. Unless they're both making a con- connecting flight from whatever. Sp- they could be in, yeah. in yeah, gone to Stockholm. In right, Stockholm. Well, if it was in Stockholm, I would have imagined that's what Stockholm Airport looks like. Yeah. With <laughs> it probably kind still of brushed, does. Brushed steel and you know. Wherever it is, I want to go there because it is a lovely airport. It's a really nice airport. Well, okay, so I I think we know which way this one is heading. Mm. Adam, would you like to give us your scores? Yeah, I I actually think, although I've criticised it quite a bit there, 
I would give it three for anticipation, three for enjoyment, and three for in retrospect. There you go. Because I kind of went in with like middling expectations. I don't think the film did enough either way to change that. All right. I'd probably go for a four in anticipation because the director, Janus Metz, Danish director, he, he actually made a really brilliant film called uh, Armadillo, a documentary about um, Danish soldiers in Helmand province. And it was really good. And um, I, I find it quite weird that he was then going on to make a tennis biopic, but thought, well, he's made a, one really good film, maybe, you know. And no, I mean, he, he, not, 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 no way at all. Um, so probably a two and a two. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I think expectations are such uh, dangerous things with, with movies. Now. I, mean, I had very low expectations because I'd read Peter Bradshaw's review and thought, well, oh, this is going to be a bit mature. Probably a two going in. Really enjoyed it. As I say, I'm a total sucker for sports films. Mm. I probably enjoyed it a four. So I don't know what that says about me. Wow. And now I'm feeling a bit sheepish about it. But yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Okay. Sorry for the downer stuff. Oh, well, the, yeah. the next one we're going to be a lot more positive about, I think, I think so. as we hail the return, 40 years on, of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Who are you people? Monsieur Neri, please, one more question. N'avez-vous pas fait récemment une rencontre? Have you recently had a close encounter? Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle? A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? Monsieur Neri, s'il vous plaît, regardez bien les visages de ces gens, de ces hommes et de ces femmes, et puis dites-moi si vous les connaissez, ou alors sont-ils des étrangers? Are strangers to you? Yeah, except for her. Et vous êtes cru obligé, allez-vous, de venir ici? And the two of you felt uh, compelled to be here? Yeah, you might say that. Mais qu'est-ce que vous trouvé? But what did you expect to find? An answer. That's not crazy, is it? Probably everybody knows what happens in this movie. Uh, anyway, no need, I don't think, to do a synopsis of this one of the, the great, one of the kind of epochal Spielberg films. Of course, he, he made two really, really famous and beloved films about, and about extraterrestrials coming to Earth. Uh, this one, the other one being uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal yeah. Skull, of course. Uh, 40 years on, how does this one measure up, David? Yeah, it's pretty good, I think. When did you last see this? Like yesterday. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> how, how new, <laughs> how new did it seem? Not that new. I've, I've seen it. Like it, it's a weird one actually, because I've, I've I've watched this film about four or five times. It's never quite got under my skin. Um, there's a, a colleague of mine who I used to work with. It was his favourite film of all time, and he actually got like quite often got physically angry at me when I and I, I used to sort of tease him and say, "Well, it's not that good." And uh, <laughs> and I think because it's a film about a guy who, you know, essentially leaves his family in search of this kind of bigger question that he, he kind of absolutely needs an answer to. And I think when I, whenever I'd watched it in the past, I'd always felt quite, I don't know what, what, how, you, how you'd even say it, like quite sort of morally disturbed by this idea that he would just up and leave. And, right. and he does so in this very shocking way, I find. Like mm. um, you have Roy Neary, as played by uh, Richard Dreyfus. He, he is a, works for the electric company because of these alien beings that are kind of flying around. There's been a kind of a blackout, and he's sort of out in his truck trying to fix things, and and has this kind of message implanted in his head. Mm. And it's um, can, can I just say, have we all seen Close Encounters? Has anyone here not seen Close Encounters? Okay. So all right, okay. we'll, we'll spoiler alert. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, anyway, so, and, but then uh, that from that point on, he's, he, you know, it, it, the film is about an obsession. And I mean, it's about a guy who you're introduced to him in, in these very incredible scenes of like family life, mm. where he's playing with his kids and he's arguing with his wife. And it's very kind of jovial. And he manages to build this really amazing relationship in just, in just one short scene. And then you're kind of asked very shortly after that, like he's gonna, this is he, this is everything that he's gonna be giving up, and um, the remainder of the film is, is is he goes on this journey. And I think in the past I've always I've always felt a bit like, wow, is is this film endorsing that basically men should shirk their responsibilities to sort of attain this bigger existential prize? It's a really interesting point. He is compelled on some level to do so. No, he has been in some way implanted with a message which he's 
it's beyond him. We see him there scraping the mashed potato, which is part of, the, of him kind of assimilating the message. But this is something that Spielberg himself touched on um, when he really looked back on the film. He said that it was a young man's film and that if he made Close Encounters now, he would have trouble with the notion of a man giving up his family and everything. But it was a young man's film and it was about a man with no responsibilities or at least leaving his responsibilities behind. What, what did you think, Adam? Yeah, I think that's interesting what you say about the, the kind of moral aspect of what he does. And I think the, the casting of Richard Dreyfuss is really interesting in that sense because he is this like great father figure in the film and very loving. But he's also, there's a sort of innocence about him and a kind of almost like juvenile quality to his performance. And it's interesting, uh, there's a great making of documentary and in it, Steven Spielberg talks about, he, he basically had the idea, uh, I think when he was making Jaws and discussed it at, at length with Richard Dreyfuss and what actors he maybe wanted to play the part. And apparently at one point he was um, looking at Steve McQueen for the role. And Steve McQueen read the script and basically said, I'd love to do this, but I can't because I can't cry on, on film. That was his like, reason for not being able to do well, it. Well, he couldn't, or he didn't want Steve to McQueen, for Brand McQueen. No, he was like, I physically can't oh, really? cry yeah, on okay. film. A uh, lot of actors were considered for this part. Uh, yeah, people like Jack Nicholson, I think. Al Pacino. Al Pacino. Yeah. And then Richard Dreyfuss, I think, was one of those things where it was, you know, so obvious that he couldn't see the perfect actor was right there in front of him. But his, yeah, his casting maybe softens that kind of morally quite thorny uh, It turns it into a kind of, yeah, there's a sort of screwball comedy element, which mm. kind of, I think, throws you off guard a bit. There's this sequence where he, his mind has been taken over to such an extent that he doesn't see any issue in essentially wrecking their house and throwing plants and bricks through the window to build this model. And it's interesting that the character of Roy's wife I can't remember what her, her name is. Uh, the character or the actress? actress. Oh, it's Terry, Terry Gar, Ron, yeah. yeah, Ronnie, of course, yeah. I think her character is fascinating because you really sympathise with her and um, Spielberg doesn't do anything to make you think he, she's in the wrong or she, she, he has a reason for wanting to leave her. Mm. Or I think the one thing he does do is kind of he slightly, he kind of mocks the sort of suburban setting. It's like these, these kind of ugly tract housing and it's like nosy neighbours and pink flamingos in the garden. And I think there is a sort of commentary on, uh, on like him maybe breaking out of, of, yeah. of the kind of, you know, suburban normalcy, I guess. Um, like seeing it again yesterday, I was really struck by the fact mm. that he really kind of toes that line really well in that he doesn't push it either way. He doesn't endorse it. He doesn't, he, he doesn't give never gives uh, uh, him a, a, re a really good reason, another good reason for him to like, leave his family. Well, apart from the fact that something colossally life-changing is happening. I must admit, that it's, I'm surprised, because it's never struck me what, what you're kind of articulating there, what Spielberg talks about in the interview. The film just kind of sweeps me along, and I, I don't know what anybody else's reaction is, but it's so much bigger. What has happened is so big that almost everything else becomes secondary, and I completely understand why he, he and anybody who wants to come with him, he does attempt to take his family with him on this trip. They go out to one of the places where he's had the encounter. It doesn't work out. So he ends up going on his own, and I hope that's not too much of a spoiler. That's the first half of the film. Mm. What follows next, back in 1977, this came out, there was Star Wars and then there was this, and they both felt like monumental films, films that effectively changed what cinema was doing. How does that aspect of the film stand up? Does it still have that kind of weight to it, Adam? I think in terms of like the, the practical effects used and some of the special effects as well, because I think they were at one point looking to do some of the spaceship effects with computers. And at that point, it was very early, probably 15 or 20 years before that really became industry standard. Um, and Spielberg, I think, thought it was, didn't look convincing enough. And I think if they had have used that, it would have dated the film quite a bit. Right. Um, in the same way that Star Wars, you know, you watch it now and there's a kind of nostalgic handmade feel to it and it's obviously very different to how movies are made now but I think actually that makes it hold up quite nicely cool okay yeah. Do you enjoyed it then oh yeah it's right. amazing excellent there are many interesting things about this film and I'm slightly hesitant about giving away too much but one thing that comes out watching it now is how much Spielberg's either practicing in this film or drawing inspiration in this film for things that he makes later on mm. the end sequence which we see hinted at has really strong parallels with the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's, there's shots as well. There's an amazing bit where, um, I forget the character's name, but it's the Roy Neary character teams up with a woman in the film mm -hmm. um, 
who, whose son has been abducted, basically, by the aliens. Uh, and they, they both are uh, compelled to drive to this destination. And there's a bit where they basically get out of the truck, walk up a kind of slope and see this mountain that has basically been uh, instilled in them. And it's uh, Devil's Tower in, in Wyoming. Mm. And, the, yeah, the shot is almost identical to the shot in Jurassic Park where they first get out of the truck and see the Brachiosaurus. Oh, nice. I mean, it's, like, almost identical, like, shot for shot. And one other thing as well, there's a scene where they kind of, when they re- initially reach Wyoming, and this, this might sound a little bit glib and it's not, it's not intended to be, I promise, but, like, they reach Wyoming and um, the army have basically made, created this ruse that there is a kind of chemical attack happening that people have to get out of town. And it's people with suitcases being forced onto trains and it's there's a real kind of you know he, 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 list, he's used, you know there is a kind of you know holocaust imagery there mm. and wow. he, you know he he he's kind of he draws on on all, all these kind of strange quite you know arcane things i guess so many things that we see again and again now come out of early spielberg films and that classic jeeps going through the desert is certainly one of the things that yeah. that we see in this and again the the opening of the film his his openings especially back in at this kind of time, I mean, Jaws, tremendous opening to the film. I guess later on, and we'll, we'll talk about some of his other movies, but uh, Saving Private Ryan, an extraordinary beginning. And this as well has a very, very attention-grabbing opening scene, one that tells you very little but leaves you extremely hungry for Mourner. Mm. Interesting. I mean, one of the things I love about this film, I mean, there is this kind of sub-theme of you know, communication and transcending these boundaries between not just humans and aliens but humans and other humans and uh, there's this kind of stunt casting of the uh, French New Wave director Francois Truffaut as, as Lacombe who is the kind of I guess he's the Earth's kind of top guy for, for, for alien communication uh, and, he's, and he's French you know why not and um, what I understand Truffaut was asked to be in this film and um, he, he wanted to write a book on, act, on film acting and he thought this would be like the ultimate research to actually be in a Steven Spielberg film and then I can just write this book on it. Caught he's good in the film, though, isn't he? He's incredible. I think one of, the, one of the, my favourite shots in the film, pretty much in the first two or three minutes, there's this opening scene where these um, World War II planes suddenly mm. reappear in the desert and there's a kind of jabbering guy and he's sort of saying, well, you know, I don't know what's happened, I don't know what's happened. And you have this shot of Truffaut's face and he gives this kind of smile as if he kind of, even before he's said anything, he, know, he, kind of, he knows what's happened. And mm. that's, I think, the ultimate sort of Spielberg motif. It's the kind of the person looking into the middle distance in, in some kind of awe, smiling. Right. And, uh, and he does it amazingly well. And it's, I think it's like, like this acting masterclass in like, you know, I think, he, I think he gives the best performance in the film. And, Brilliant. And, and, the, and his best moment is in the first, like, three minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so having wound up your, your former colleague for years saying that you didn't like this, you've kind of said now that you, one of the things that you love about this film. So where does this film stand for you? Is it an absolute classic? Is it a decent stab at, at, from early, early Spielberg at uh, an alien arrival film? Oh, no, I think this is um, top tier because it's... Um, because it's taken me so long to get there. I think there's, seeing a film and loving it the first time, that's all well and good, but actually having to see it five times before you're actually convinced that it's, it's great is... Uh... So beyond Truffaut then, because you said about what you don't like about it, the ethical question of the, of the, of the father walking away from his family... That's what I didn't like, but yeah, I think so I like what... it now. Oh, you like that now? No, it's not that I like it, but I, I, I think the ambiguities are more... I think they're, they're more sort of... I think I understand them a bit better, and right. that, he, that he is it's a kind of provocation. Okay. Um, and that, you know, he's purposely putting out this dilemma and, um, and, and not answering it. And that's what I find interesting about the film. Okay. Would you like to give it some scores? Yeah, sure. I, I don't know how else I could score this, but sort of fives across the board. Right. Although I don't think it's his best film. Um, and there is something kind of raw about it. It feels like a, a, the, the work of a director who's still kind of learning their, their craft a bit. There is just something, there's something there in it which so many people, including Spielberg himself, have tried to kind of replicate since and arguably maybe not quite, nothing quite captures the, the magic of this film. Yeah. David? 
Yeah, I, well, I probably have like lower anticipation, seeing as I, I, I've, I've not had a great time with it before, but this time it, it, it hit me finally. So uh, yeah, no, top hole. Top marks. <laughs> I would, I would, the people who haven't seen it, I would really urge you, and I, I imagine that you will see it sooner or later, possibly on the big screen on this re-release that it's having, because I think it's a fascinating film, also because it's a, it, it's a kind of sweet spot between 1970s conspiracy movies which it has a strong there's a strong flavor of that going through this and that early kind of what david calls spielberbia that kind of innocence that kind of redolent of american small town life i don't call it that that other people do i copy them oh okay right <laughs> so it's it's really interesting that marriage between mm. the, the, some darker things but there's also this sense that everything's going to be okay and again a similarity with raiders that there's almost like an unstated assumption that there is a higher power, that there is something looking out for us, that everything is going to be all right, that doesn't make a lot of appearances in Raiders, but it's definitely there. Mm. And I think it's here as well, and that's why it's not a problem that he leaves his family. That's why everything's going to hopefully be okay, although we'll see at the end of the film whether that works out or not. So, um, yeah, I think it's a terrific film. Fantastic. All right, well, uh, there you go. That's Close Encounters. If you haven't seen it, or even if you haven't fancy seeing it again, uh, it will be out. Is it already out, or will it be out on it's Friday? Out. It was on Friday, out. so I'm not sure but exactly it will, how long it will be out, it'll be out for. Mm, excellent. Okay, next up, more Spielberg chat, as we take a little look back over the great man's oeuvre in our Little White Lies film club. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Little White Lies Film Club. In our regular show every week, we dust off an underrated or neglected gem for a bit of a look at, but in honor of uh, Spielberg's incredible body of work, uh, we kind of threw it out on social media mm. to see what, what people thought, uh, what was their favorite film from his, what, more than 30 that he's directed, yeah, counting, yeah. many more he's produced. Mm. A five decade long career, we had so many responses, possibly the best of them was, I don't know if we can put this up, gentleman who said, uh, my favourite film of Steven Spielberg was Jaws because I didn't get a scholarship to college and my dad had to pay for it. And that was for Ben Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Richard replies, I used the Poseidon money for your college. That wasn't college, says his son, that was rehab. I get them confused because neither took. <laughs> a, a delightful exchange there on uh, the Little White Lies uh, Twitter feed. Yeah. So um, <laughs> wait, there were so many other nominations. Any, any you want to uh, read out at this point? Christina Newland is one of our contributors. The Colour Purple, because it's a beautiful outlier in his historically focused work. Mm. Uh, and Scout to Foyer, Lincoln. Love the coldness of the milieu, counted with his inherent warmth. Those great old actors spitting fire. The movie's kind of like looking out of a window in your grandparents' house in the middle of the autumn. Like looking out of a window in your grandparents' house in the middle of autumn. What do you think uh, Scout means by that? I think he's talking maybe about more about himself than the, uh, okay. than the film, maybe. Um, All right. I like Nightcall Runoff, who says Jurassic Park, because a dinosaur eats a lawyer sitting on a toilet, which is... Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That's all you need. That's all you need. <laughs> Denis Sass, who says, Jewel, so intense, uh, with such a little premise, keeps up the thrill the whole time. 
And George McCann, Schindler's List, its artistry is unparalleled and it's one of the most harrowing films I've ever seen. Well, well that's true, yeah, isn't it? I can't it? disagree with that. That is true. You guys have picked out a favourite. Yes. Um, would you, I'm not sure, are these your actual favourites or just the ones you thought would be interesting to talk about? Well, my one isn't necessarily my favourite of his, but it's one that I think I like more now than some of the other kind of classic ones like Jaws and things like that because I didn't like it when I first saw it. It's maybe one of the more recent ones, so and kind of dismissed it and now have subsequently rewatched it several times and, and appreciate it for what it is. Right, and um, what's that, Adam? Uh, it is War of the Worlds. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. So what is behind this Road to Damascus conversion that, that you've had it? I mean, I think at the time I wrote it off as a kind of big, shiny Tom Cruise blockbuster, which, you know, did a job, was quite serviceable, and there wasn't much more kind of to it. And the more, I guess, I've revisited Spielberg's films and, and I guess, drawn parallels between that and, and other films um, that he's made, yeah, I just, I, I think it's, it's one of Tom Cruise's best performances and most interesting as well. It's the first time on screen that he actually plays a father. So he, he was in Minority Report a few years earlier, Steven Spielberg's, I think it's 2002 film, and his character is a father in that film, but I, don't, I think you ever, ever see his kid. Mm. Um, whereas in this, he is actually, you know, meant to be a kind of blue-collar worker, average Joe type. I had exactly that, that reaction that you had, that it was a decent enough sci-fi thriller, but mm. nothing more. So what, what am I missing then? I don't know if it's anything that you could possibly be missing just because it's right there in front of you. I mean, the whole film is about this dad essentially learning what it means to be a father. Um, he, he's kind of introduced as a guy who's a bit down on his luck. You know, he's divorced. He understands what it means to be a father, but he shows absolutely no... Uh, you know, he doesn't have the attributes required. Um, and it's a, basically a film about his paternal instincts kicking in, I suppose. It's a nice, actually, it's I think a nice companion to Close Encounters because in that film, a guy abandons his family in search of this this thing that he doesn't really understand. To go and to the aliens. Exactly, yeah. And this one, he's, he's running he away is from the literally running away from the aliens. Can. But it's also just, yeah, it's a really simple, uh, I think, lovely family story about a guy, you know, learning his place in the in the universe, and I mean, at one point, pretty much sacrificing himself for his kids, saving his kids. Um, and, yeah, you could kind of strip away all the alien stuff right? and still keep that central kind of core family nucleus of the film. I love how it's all kind of shot on at ground level as well. You know, it's this big alien invasion movie and you see a lot of the aliens in, in the film and a lot of the kind of carnage and destruction that they wreak on, on the Earth, but it's all from this ground level perspective as, yeah. as they're kind of fleeing and... Yeah, a lot was made of possible 9/11 parallels as well. Yeah, I guess what came out a few years after that, but was you know at the height of the kind of Iraq War at the time. Um, it's interesting as a kind of comment on military intervention, and not necessarily. It's not a particularly political film. I don't think it has anything negative necessarily to say about that, other than just military intervention is harmful on both sides. Right, and it's quite a kind of matter of fact way of looking at that. And it's interesting that, you know, he's, he's adapted this existing kind of classic H.G. Wells where even though it feels like quite a convenient ending by sort of modern blockbuster standards, the idea that nature has the final say and it's this like, simple organic thing that, that basically defeats the aliens and not anything kind of man-made. Definitely worth going back and looking at Oh, again. I think so, yeah. OK. All right, you've got uh, an interesting choice for yours, David. Yeah, Mine came down to two, All right. and, I, and I sort of had the kind of kind of go gooey-eyed over which, uh, whenever I see it, which is Jurassic Park, which uh, which it, which has immense nostalgia factor for me, right. and uh, I, I think it's it's perfect. And then the sort of sooty, pretentious, slightly weird one that I thought I'd go with anyway, yeah. okay. which is AI. Right. Um, oh, is that a groan? <laughs> <laughs> so again, oh, I gosh. I wasn't blown away by AI. Convince us, David, what oh, is gosh. there in this film that, that, that makes it possibly the best of well, all of his films? Just to give a bit of backstory. Do you want some backstory? Yeah. Some backstory. How, how long does it take? <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it brief. Stanley Kubrick wanted to make this film. This was a bit of a kind of dream project for him for a long time. And it's actually something he and uh, Spielberg spoke about a lot. They were friends during the 1980s and never to the point of like a creative partnership, but they would chat about the, this idea and, and Spielberg always said, oh, yeah, it's a really lovely idea for a film. And Kubrick couldn't quite crack it. So he, he, the two issues he had is he couldn't get the, the script right. He had like f 
uh, three or four scriptwriters have a pass at it. It's based on a Brian Aldiss short story called uh, Super Toys Last All Summer Long. His other issue was that he felt that the, the technology, the sort of computer graphics and the CGI wasn't at a level that would actually do justice to the film and to his vision of it. And um, Kubrick then later said to Steven Spielberg, you should do this film and I'll produce it. Because that's, that's, I think, the best way for it, for it to go. And Spielberg was a bit like, yeah, that's, that's a nice idea. And, you know, I, I don't think his heart was really in it. But he kind of, he sort of, you know, he said, yeah, let me, let me ponder it. And, 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 and I, I, you know, he, he pondered and pondered and pondered. And then Kubrick died. And it became his, the only thing that he could do. I mean, he claims he suddenly understood the film and understood a way he could make it, but also, and secondly, it was his kind of tribute to, to Stanley Kubrick. Right. And I think the thing I, I, I love about this film is that, I mean, there are a, a couple of outliers in, in um, Steven Spielberg's back catalogue, and this, this is definitely one of them. And it's him doing kind of hard sci-fi and hard philosophy. It's, it's really, it's super, super deep. I mean all his films you kind of look back to the kind of great showman of old Hollywood and you know he's sort of seen as the, the Cecil B. DeMille of, 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 of the kind of modern era and this this film feels more like kind of Andrei Tarkovsky or something it's mm. it's proper kind of it's really deep <laughs> like to the point where it's like you know you, you know you ponder it and, and you can't quite comprehend the what's and the why's but it's, it's this kind of beautiful fable at the same time the opening scene of the film is it kind of sets up this question. We've got William Hurt as a, as a scientist, and sorry, this is a future where the world has been destroyed by global warming. So very, uh, um, yeah, the seas have risen and lots of cities have been destroyed, and there's been a, a curb on on people being able to give birth. So, and it's the era of like mechanoids, so so sort of android robots, and uh, William Hurt wants to develop a child robot who is able to love. It's a kind of toy for people who can't have children. Mm. And um, the question that is then sort of thrown back at him is, well, you know, yeah, maybe you could make a, an, an android that loves, but can, you, can people ever love an android? And the film essentially plays out that question over two and a bit hours and <laughs> a, a mighty runtime. It's kind of jaw-dropping on, 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 on many levels, I find. And, you know, you have Haley Joel Osment's performance very convincing as an android, and that isn't a, that isn't a diss. <laughs> you know, he's uh, he you know he has all these kind of ticks and things that the tone is very kind of his his kind of constant refrain is I love you, mummy, I love you, mummy. But then he's actually there's actually a kind of you know dead-eyed horror element to it as well, where you know he is a robot and he you know he doesn't have that kind of sense of morals where he you know he could kill you at any second, I guess, and. Um, and, and it kind of play, it plays, uh, the, f the first half of the film is from uh, uh, the parents' perspective who adopt this, this boy. And the reason they've adopted him because they've lost their own, ch well, their own child is in, it is, is in some kind of coma or something after an accident. So they adopt him. And um, you see the film from the parents' perspective of having this kind of strange alien being in their house. And then it kind of, the, the film, switches when the son wakes up from his coma and comes back home and suddenly there's a the dynamic has completely changed and they realize oh now we've got the real son back now we don't need the old one and the son david having heard pinocchio being mm. read by read by his mother is it, it becomes fixated on this idea of the blue fairy turning him into a real boy yeah well, let's not spoil any more yes, of the and, uh, of the movie it also draws a lot on apart from pinocchio astro boy mm. a terrific japanese manga which they made a very successful animated movie on probably about 10 years ago. Mm. There's wow. a lot of parallels in there, <laughs> yeah. Astro Boy, it's shorter as well. Oh, right, okay, yeah. I'll look into um, that. So, well, yeah, it's interesting one AI, because it, it left me a little bit cold. There you go, so, the, all right, that and Jurassic Park. Adam, you mentioned that there's one that you, what, you thought maybe was too obvious. What was your favourite, uh, Spielberg? Well, actually, I think Jurassic Park. Would have really? To, yeah, Jurassic I, well, Jurassic Park was, was actually the first film I saw in a cinema. Ever. Really? Yeah. Okay. So I have that kind of connection to it. When you watch Jaws now, mm. do you not think Jurassic Park is an opportunity missed? And I know that's a controversial thing to say, but... In what, what would be the Well, the in miss? terms of the way that you've got a similar, slightly similar dynamic, humans being hunted 
by this kind of primal eating machine. Mm. And this is a lot to do with the editor. I can't remember the name of the editor for Jaws, but it was a, she was an extraordinarily successful... Um, I've got it written down somewhere, but it doesn't matter. But anyway, the editing on Jaws is quite extraordinary. It's one of the amazing things about that film. In Jaws, the tension is ratcheted up gradually, gradually, and it's dosed. And when it arrives, it makes a hammer blow. And I don't think you can beat the level of shocks the precision with which Spielberg deploys mm. the shark appearances. Jurassic Park, it's amazing because it's got bloody dinosaurs wandering around and it just looked extraordinary. But there's one moment in there when, you, when Jeff Goldblum looks at the glass and there's the impact tremors and he says, impact tremors. And that just gave me a hint of the, the way that Spielberg had ratcheted things up with Jaws, which he never really does in this. It's, it's a little bit too obvious. And the kind of one little bit of backstory on this is that he wasn't there when Jurassic Park was edited. He went and shot it, and then he went straight over to, I think, Stockholm to do Schindler's List, mm. and he essentially edited it on the phone. And I always wonder what film he would Actually have made. with his phone. Yeah. <laughs> that would be something. Because you could. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I always wonder what... what uh, I mean, it's a terrific film, but it's not Jaws. And for me, if I was going to say my favourite Spielberg film, which is, you know, they're all great, but I would say either Jaws all Raiders. Okay. And if I absolutely had to pick one, not that it matters terribly, Raiders is the ultimate adventure film and it's, yeah. it's kind of the, the film that destroys James Bond as a, as a series because it's, it's just so much better, I guess, and remains so much better. If you go back and watch a Bond film from anything more than five years ago, it's hideously dated and hideously problematic. But Raiders is just, from the opening shot, and, and what a brilliant opening sequence, to the first time that Indy, after being silhouette for the first five minutes, steps into the light. And just everything about that film is fantastic. Mm. Jaws, though, is so wonderfully simple. There's a fish and there's three guys on a boat. And you know what? You could even take the fish out of that film and it would still be absolutely fantastic. You'd still have the USS Philadelphia. You'd still have Goodbye and Farewell to You Fair Spanish Ladies. You'd still have all the great things. You'd still have Richard Dreyfuss crushing a styrofoam cup. It's just streets ahead of everything. But Jaws. what about the lawyer being eaten on the toilet? <laughs> You're right. That classic, You're right. that classic moment. You're right. Well, this did get some other people eaten, of course. But, yeah. I, I know what you mean about... I mean, I guess he shows his hand a little bit earlier in uh, Jurassic Park in showing you the dinosaurs a lot earlier. But it's basically like, if in Jaws the shark won, like, that's kind of what Jurassic Park is. Right. And I, and I love that. I think it just, like, stoked my sense of... I mean, I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid as well, so maybe that kind of helped, but... Yeah, that's nice, I suppose. Do you know what? Probably enough of us yakking. Should we see if anybody else wants to nominate a favourite Spielberg film? Or yeah, indeed, should, yeah. comment on any, any of the other things that we've said. Ah, gentlemen there. Hello. Hello. Hi. Is it on? Yes, okay. Um, I've been really happy to hear about the Jurassic Park Club. Uh, I, I, I feel like that doesn't come up a lot in these Spielberg conversations of greatest film because I think there is that, that sense of like, yeah, it's a banger of a film, great, mm. but it's not the greatest. It's my favorite film of all time, not just Spielberg. Jurassic I, Park. I genuinely love Jurassic really? Park, yeah. And I think part of the reason is that it there are things about it I don't love I don't love Nedry's last scene in that film every time that that scene comes up it's, I'm just like maybe I don't want to keep mm. watching it but I always keep pushed past it the reason I love Jurassic Park so much is there's like there's like six or seven greatest scenes in that film like just classic just either nail biting or like the raptor scene in the kitchen the first the T-Rex approach but my favorite scene in that film is the one where just Laura Dern and Richard Attenborough are in the in the dining hall and the ice cream is melting mm. and they're just talking and he brings up the flea circus and it's just such a classic all the motifs that i feel like jurassic world went for and just kind of whiffed on are just so strong in that scene of like our urge to create and to entertain and how it can go wrong i just i i've always loved that film and i don't think for nostalgic reasons necessarily i just think it's just a really perfect film okay my favourite shot in probably the Spielberg entire catalogue is when Laura Dern stands up in the Jeep when she first sees the, the, oh, yeah. the Brachiosaurus. And that's another one of these kind of Spielberg looking in the mid middle distance in awe shots, I mm. think. One of the other things I, I, I love about Jurassic Park, one of the reasons I love it, is because I think there's something like deeper going on, I think. Because it's one of the first great uses of like very full-the-eye computer graphics. Mm. And the way he did it was using, you know, he mixed kind of latex and he mixed computer graphics together to make these very sort of realistic looking dinosaurs. And, and it's kind of, I think it's amazing that you, you know, you have this film about, ask questions about, should we do this? You know, should we bring these things back to life just because we can? And then 
the actual production side of the film is like it's bringing these things back to life because they can. You know, it's like they're, they're, you, you have these. It's kind of life imitating art kind of thing, and I almost see the film as the kind of story of CGI. Right. You know? <laughs> so CGI is essentially Hollywood is the island. CGI yeah. is the is the T Rex that. Ricky At- Dickie Attenborough yeah, and, and, has created and Spielberg's true, and, unleashed on the island. It's true, and CGI is going to go on to wreck Hollywood because it looks looks awful. That's fascinating. And it's going to make it its way to the mainland in the next movie. All right. And, and then Colin Trevorrow is going to make a film with it and it's going to be, it's going to be the worst thing ever. Yeah. Um, so everyone loves Jurassic Park, then apart, apart from me, who quite likes it. Uh, anybody else who got a favourite Spielberg film? Oh, so lots of people at the back there. Sorry, my comment was related to the earlier conversation. I just want to say, when you talk about Harry Dean Stanton films, mm. I really think my favourite performances is Pretty in Pink, and that's the one that stays with me forever. That father figure, he's so sympathetic, but he's so flawed. Um, the conversation that he has with Ducky when they're sat in the front yard, I just think that's one of my favourite cinematic scenes of all time. Do you know, I have to admit, I've never seen Pretty in Pink. Oh, you should, you should give it a go. Yeah, it's absolutely. Great. So, uh, have you guys seen it? Not for a long time, but yeah. S- same, yeah, long time. To, okay. Long enough to not remember that he was in it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Is it worth going back and... Do you see it a lot? It's one of my favourite films of all time, I think. Okay. And, you know, I... I mean, I would consider it to be my favourite John Hughes film. And also, like, growing up as a, a red-headed girl... Molly Ringwald was very important to me, and particularly <laughs> that film, because she was kind of a misfit and she was cool in this specific way. There's something about Pretty in Pink. Um, so maybe, I don't know, I mean, maybe nostalgia's playing a big part in this, but I, don't, I, I love Pretty in Pink, yeah. All right, no, I think nostalgia in, in movies, it's, it, you know, shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, it's, it's a powerful know, thing. Whatever connection you make with the film and, and for whatever reasons. Somebody else would like to make a comment? Hi. Uh, just in terms of favourite Spielberg movie, uh, mine would be Catch Me If You Can, mm. which uh, is one that I liked the first time that I watched it just because it's a kind of a breezy, beautifully shot the kind of 60s movie. The John Williams score is really great and the aesthetic of it is really lovely. But the more times I rewatch it, the greater the sense of desperation and melancholy comes in in DiCaprio's desire to please his father, which really seems to be kind of a Spielbergian trope coming through (laughs) his own difficult relationship to to his father Uh, and just I think Christopher Walken's performance in that is is an all-timer I think he's he's wonderful no I I think that's a a really good choice and it's interesting I've I've seen it compared actually to a con man's act this film because it's it's so effortless it's so smooth it's so fleet-footed as a romp but actually beneath that there is this whole issue of a a boy's quest for identity when he doesn't have a family anymore to kind of hang who he is on. Of course, it's got Hanks in being fantastic, and the, <laughs> the difference between the kind of yin and yang of, of him and DiCaprio is fantastic. Um, yeah, I think that's a great film. I, do, I can't believe we hadn't mentioned that before, actually. I would, would say about, the, about Catch Me If You Can, I do concur, I think, like, to, to hell with The Revenant, I think that this is Leonardo DiCaprio's greatest performance. I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing, and definitely kind of channels um, Richard Dreyfuss in, in, in Close Encounters, that kind of monomania, nothing can change my mind, mm. I'm, I'm sort of blasting forward and taking everything and everyone with me. Wow. I mean, there's so many other films that we didn't mention, probably, I mean, there was a brief a nod to Saving Private Ryan, which, mm-hmm. a, again, moved things on in terms of the way people depicted warfare and did a lot of other things as yeah, well. Yeah, E.T. E.T., of course. Well, anyway, we could sit here all night. And yeah, talk about we, well, we could. Yeah. Anybody else want to throw in any other comments or uh, have anything else they'd like to respond to at all? Down here. Hello. 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 I was just going to ask more question to you. Um, do you. Who do you think in like thirty years' time, a director that's around now, you will be sitting and doing like the same sort of show about? That's a very good question. Wow. <laughs> I tell you, someone I really like at the moment is Jeff Nichols, who's a bit of a I mean, Spielberg's clearly a massive influence mm. on him, but he's made sort of four or five films now, and they're all, I think, really, really good, really interesting. The last one, Midnight Special, I guess that was the kind of bigger, showier, blockbustery one, very kind of Spielberg-y. Um, but then he's, you know, went on to make Loving after that, which um, I guess that would be his kind of colour purple if we're going to go keep making those comparisons, which I shouldn't now. But um, yeah, he's he's someone I think if he carries on making the films that he's making and we could easily be sat here talking about his work. 
That's such a good question. Um, uh, I, I, would I have say, a long answer so I can think about it. Okay. Well, if we're thinking about someone who, who's making great blockbusters at the moment, if that's maybe the question, I would say my personal favourite of the moment is, this, is a director called uh, Gareth Edwards. He, his first film he made was called Monsters, and it was this, this kind of lo-fi sort of shot on the lamb thing made in Mexico about a border wall between Mexico and, and the, U, the US and, and an alien invasion. And it was just this very creative and its impact far outweighed its kind of very modest means. Mm -hmm. And from that kind of sort of indie, small, uh, sort of low budget debut feature, he then made Godzilla, which I just, I, I wept at the end of, in a, in a good way. Uh, <laughs> and I know there are some people who are, not, who are probably not a fan of, of, of the new Godzilla, but I think as a kind of sensory experience, I, just, I, think, I think it's great. And the, the way he kind of orchestrates and uh, choreographs and, and, and he, I think you know, he's got this very Spielbergian feel to him. Mm. And, like, and as you say, I mean, this idea of, you know, I think everyone complained that in Godzilla, you know, you have to wait like 80 minutes before you see Godzilla. And, you know, that's the whole point. Mm. You know, if, you, if you see him straight away, it's like, well, there he is, yeah, yeah. the film's over, you know? And, uh, and he plays that kind of long game and, and, I, and I really like that. And, and then, then he did Rogue One. And then he did Rogue One, which yeah. I thought was, was like, you know, lovely. I'm not a big Star Wars bod, but um, yeah, Rogue One. I, I really liked Rogue One. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. If we'd had this question a couple of years ago, I would have said Brad Bird, who at that point I thought, this guy, everything he does is fantastic. And it was predominantly in, in animation at, the, at that time, which I guess is a, a slightly narrower field. But uh, The Iron Giant is a glorious film. Uh, he then did um, Incredibles. The Incredibles, Incredibles and then Ratatouille, both of which are beautifully told, beautifully placed, comic, but also deeply touching. His stuff said I haven't been quite so swept away by. I wonder what, what Edgar Wright's going to do, actually, because what he's done so far is shown such a, a grasp, such a kind of mastery of, of not just, you know, the whole kind of comic pacing, but also editing and how far you can take things, which directions you can take the whole kind of storytelling thing, you know, how much you can break the fourth wall and all mm. that kind of thing. But to be fair, a great question, and, and, and I need to go along, go away. Who and would you say? And um, everyone kept saying Christopher Nolan, but mm. I think it's almost like he's done too many big things already and it's maybe he won't last that long. <laughs> no, Christopher Nolan, I think, is, is also a great shout. I wonder whether Christopher Nolan is someone who will, you know, just continue making movies forever or whether he will kind of get to a point where he just does something else. I don't know, he, he could go kind of James Cameron route, I think. Yeah. The other thing about um, comparing him to Spielberg, which, which is something that... I guess we all take for granted the films he made, but when you look at the films he made back kind of at the tail end of the 70s and the early 80s, when he was kind of late 20s as a, as a director, early 30s, and he made Jaws and Raiders soon after that and Close Encounters in between. I mean, huge films. 29. He was 29. When he did Close Encounters. And that's just extraordinary. And it's embarrassing. Uh, for me, they completely... Yeah, really. <laughs> so I don't know if we can see anybody who's doing films of a similarly game-changing magnitude at this point. But, but it's you know, maybe, I don't know, is it harder now to make game-changing movies? Maybe so, maybe so. so someone who I think has, maybe has that potential but hasn't actually made a film that I've liked is a guy called Denis Villeneuve. Oh, yeah. Who uh, has done the new Blade Runner and he's done Arrival. And you don't like his films? No, he's no, really good at making like half a good film. <laughs> um, so he did Sicario. So I think of, of his like six films, there's kind of three. <laughs> you can you can actually compact it down to three. Because Sicario, people were wild about. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And we don't have too much longer. You'll be glad to know. But how much did you enjoy Arrival? Half. Quarter? Yeah, half. Half. I mean, yeah. I mean, talking about Close Encounters. I mean, the, the Arrival is the very poor, poor, poor man's Close right. Encounters. I mean. There you go. Now, um, what is Spielberg doing next? Ready Player One. When is that going to be out? Well, he's got Ready Player One, which I think is out early April, next year. Early next year, And he's yeah, also okay. got this film. I can't remember what it's now called, The Papers or The Post or something, but it's this, yeah, the, the kind of Washington Post. And that's before, that's going to be out before Ready Player One, is it? No, I think that's out after. Oh, out after, yeah. okay. So, um, when, sorry, Ready Player One is out early next year? Yeah, it's quite soon. And the, the buzz is a bit mixed on that, is that fair? There's been a trailer out. And it, and it, mm. <laughs> <laughs> It's got the Iron Giant in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was excited. <laughs> uh, Ready Player One also features Simon Pegg. Mm, Pegg is... No, I'm out. <laughs> Sorry. All right, then. I like him in Spaced. Yeah. 
And what about the no. Shaun of the Dead? No, nothing else. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Sorry, Peggers. Okay. Uh, Adam, did you enjoy Shaun of the Dead? Yeah, I, I, it's fine, Peg's okay. All righty then. Well, listen, so um, that brings us pretty much to the end of, uh, of this edition, this live special edition of Truth and Movies. We're going to do a, one in a studio, or rather less uh, entertainingly, on Wednesday, in which we're going to be looking at Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Then we've got On Body and Soul, which David knows all about. Yeah, it's the, it's a, it's a kind of surreal Hungarian film that won the uh, Berlinale uh, Golden Bear this year by a female director, and it's kind of quite beautiful, I think. Is it? Okay. Yeah. All you right. guys haven't seen it yet, have No, you? not yet. No, no. I, right. I hope you like it. I hope so too. And in Film Club, we'll be urging you to watch again, or for the first time, Far From Heaven, which uh, Dennis Hayes... Yeah, Hayesburg. Hayesburg, thank you. And Julian Moore? Moore yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, okay, excellent. <laughs> and, uh, Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes, yeah, there we go. Uh, anyway, so that's a treat, and we'll be talking about all of those things in a slightly more condensed fashion in Wednesday's edition of Truth and Movies. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or on the Twitter at LWLies. Listen, thank you so much uh, for your patience through this slightly meandering uh, evening, and uh, I do hope anyone who hasn't seen Close Encounters will be going out to to see it and uh, and, and also Remember Paul versus Macaron yeah, yeah. all like those years ago a, a week ago we were speaking about that <laughs> <laughs> many thanks to, to David and Adam uh, for being with us and uh, yeah I do hope we'll see you again soon cheers everyone, guys planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 